Hello and welcome to our second series of The Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climbwood Hambros. In this series, we explore how to simplify life's financial challenges and ask what responsibility means in the current world. My name is Fahad Kamal, Chief Investment Officer, and I'll be hosting today's episode. Peering into each other's homes through Zoom has made clear that our home life has an enormous impact in both our work and our education. COVID-19 has exacerbated inequalities across society, widening many of the gaps which exist, and that also is true for the education system. As we emerge from the pandemic, there is a risk that students from underprivileged backgrounds will be left even further behind. Against this challenging backdrop, Kleinwood Hamburgers is proud to partner with The Brilliant Club, an educational charity which aims to make higher learning more accessible. And in today's podcast, there's two key questions we'd like to address. One, how can organizations such as ours join forces with charities to help young people from underrepresented backgrounds fully realize their potential? And two, how can we share knowledge and expertise within local communities, helping young people become financially literate? Today, we are joined by Anne-Marie Canning, CEO of The Brilliant Club, and our very own Paul Kearns, Head of Banking and Credit Solutions. Anne-Marie was appointed CEO of The Brilliant Club in March 2020, on the first day of lockdown, incidentally. Prior to this, she spent seven years at King's College London, where she was Director of Social Mobility and Student Success. She has worked at the University of Oxford and Citizens UK, and she's passionate about widening participation and fair access. For all her efforts in 2018, she was also awarded an MBE for services to higher education. Also with us today is Paul Kearns, who alongside his day job at Kleinwood Hamburgers, has worked closely with experts from the Brilliant Club. Together, they have co-designed an educational course on economics and pupils targeted at ages 11 to 13, asking what is money? Anne-Marie, Paul, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Anne-Marie, if I can start with you, can, can you just take us through what exactly the Brilliant Club is and what is its core mission? Of course. Um, the Brilliant Club is a nationwide university access charity and we help uh, young people from less advantaged backgrounds to access highly selective universities. And we do that through giving them the opportunity to work with a PhD researcher to explore university style learning. Uh, we work with about 20,000 pupils a year. Um, we've got about 2,000 PhD researchers that we work with. We've been around for about 10 years now. So we've just had our 10-year birthday party, which is a great mm, moment. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and the programme that we're, we're most well known for is the Scholars Programme. Uh, and that's what we've been collaborating with Kleinwood Hambrus to develop. Um, and that programme effectively doubles the rate of application and enrolment at those highly selective universities. And that's through a very robust evaluation methodology that we've been running for about five years. And, you know, you might say, well, wh why does it matter? Well, it matters because one in 50 of the poorest learners will make it to one of those highly selective universities versus one in four of the, the wealthiest young people in the UK. So we see huge differences in who gets to be a student at one of these universities. Clearly, um, access to higher learning to top tier universities clearly seems to have some connection to, to wealth and background. I mean, can you walk us through that, talk us through that? Why do children from more challenged backgrounds find it so much more difficult to get to university, assuming that they've got, they've got the talent, which they obviously do. So what's, what's holding them back? Why, why is it so much more difficult? 
you're right, who, who gets to be a student at one of these universities is highly stratified, both in terms of socioeconomic background, but also a range of other factors as well, including uh, ethnicity and educational background as well. So I like to boil it down to three things, which is knowledge, skills and confidence, right? So the first thing is, is we know there's a very close relationship between attainment and access to these universities. Uh, and we know that there's an attainment gap between the poorest learners. Sorry, and just if I can push you, Henry, so what do you mean by attainment? Yeah, so, you know, um, get, getting those grades in GCSEs or, or other stages of education, uh, there'll be grade differentials uh, for students from less advantaged backgrounds. Now, that doesn't mean they're less academically capable. It means they've not necessarily had the academic experiences so far to really allow them to fly. Um, I talked about skills as well. Um, it, it does take a, a range of skills to uh, gain access to one of these universities. So knowing what university is about and knowing some of the rules of the game, uh, those skills of how to apply and be successful, uh, they matter too. Uh, and then finally, the confidence. We know that students from uh, well-off backgrounds, they have this great support network around them. If you're first generation like I am, mum and dad don't tend to know an awful lot about university. They're often supportive, but they don't have the ability to you know, share their own experiences. So they'll be supportive, but they don't have that lived experience themselves. So I say it's knowledge, skills and confidence. And I think what's really important is to recognise that universities haven't been that great at recognising the potential of young people. So I always encourage us to think about the admission systems of these universities. Let's think about them as rather than prize giving ceremonies, potential spotting activities. That's the trick, because ultimately universities will be better uh, and will have a, a, a much more productive society if we really unearth the talent. So uh, a, a few reasons there. I think what's really important is you'll, you'll hear about young people who've made it against all the odds, these incredible young people with these social mobility trajectories. But what's important is to recognise the role of the system and the structural inequalities that face young people. And that's why the Brilliant Club is is an important part of the answer to that because we're nationwide and we can go wherever a young person happens to live uh, and our programme reaches into all parts of the UK. Can you actually look, I, I, you know, I'm so fascinated with your organisation. Would you just spend a little bit of time just walking through the genesis? How was it founded? How, how, was, how did you connect the fact to take these, you know, existing PhD scholars in these top universities and connect them with more challenged, students with more challenged backgrounds? Yeah, so um, about about 10 years ago, when I was working at King's College London, two, two guys walked into my office at the university and said, hey, we've had this idea, uh, and it involves getting PhD researchers to work closely and to share their research with young people. And I can remember um, meeting uh, Johnny and Sai at that point and thinking, this is an ingenious idea, because essentially what you've got is young people who need more of that access to that type of researcher, that type of world, that experience of learning. And you've got these PhD researchers who are very keen to engage the public in their own research. Uh, and essentially, you're, you're pairing up people who've got very little social capital, and then the PhD researchers with a lot of social capital, and you're starting to share that. So it is simplest. It's a great idea for that reason. But the other reason I thought it was such a promising idea when I first heard about it a decade ago, and why I signed up straight away to be a partner of the Brilliant Club, was because I, I could see that there's this whole army of PhD researchers across the UK. There's 100,000 of them, and we currently have 2,000 on the books. Imagine if we had 5,000. So I can see there's this massive untapped potential of all of these PhD researchers coming forward and sharing their subject expertise, knowledge, enthusiasm with young people across the UK. 
I'll tell you a funny story about the name. Um, <laughs> the reason it's called The Brilliant Club is um, the, the two founders were applying for some funding and they didn't have a name for the charity. So they wrote down on the application form TBC to be confirmed. And when they turned up to do the pitch, the investor said, why don't you call it The Brilliant Club? And they said, OK. <laughs> um, uh, and so that's how the name came into, into being. But I, I think it's a wonderful name because it says to young people, you're brilliant. You're special. You've got talents. And I think that's a really powerful message for young people to hear, particularly from the sorts of backgrounds of, of the children and, and students we work with. No, the, the, look, it's not just a brilliant, not just a brilliant name, but also a brilliant idea and, and brilliant execution as well, which, which, is, which is critical. Listen, I'm actually speaking of execution, just walk us through it. So your flagship program is the Scholars Program. And how does that work? Can you give us, you know, sort of also some examples of what brilliant success you've had on the ground? Yeah, so essentially schools will sign up for the programme. We've got about 40 university partners and currently about a 1,000 schools signed up for the programme. And they essentially sign up young people who they think will benefit the most. And the young people uh, have, have a number of characteristics. Uh, it helps us to identify that they'll benefit from the programme the most. So they'll be first generation, first in their family. They'll be from a, a postcode that is in the bottom 40% of indices of multiple deprivation. And they'll also be uh, probably... Are those, are, those the, are those the requirements? So it has to come yeah. from... Yeah. from the, so it has to cross all these filters. Yeah, exactly. And they'll often be pupil premium, which means uh, their household income is below £16,000. Uh, and 80% and, and of the children, 85% of the children we work with hit at least one of those indicators. So we know we're reaching the children who need that programme the most. I mean, you know, just, just, just stopping you there for a second, I mean, that's quite a powerful number, right? £16,000 in household income. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the topics we might get on to later is, is sort of people's perceptions of wealth in, in the UK and how they're, they're quite far from the reality of, of most people's lived realities of, of their household budgets. But, but here's what happens if you're a kid. You, you, you get told you're taking part in the Brilliant Club. Um, you join a, a small group at your school and you get to work closely with a PhD researcher. They're from all over the UK, all over the world, actually, uh, universities across the UK, all different backgrounds um, in terms of subject expertise as well. And the other thing I always remind people is our PhD community is very, very diverse. I think people think a PhD student is like 21, but actually we've got people from all different walks of life, including people who are, are currently working, actually, sometimes in you know research development, that type of space. So they, they're, they're paired up with their PhD tutor. They have a launch visit at a university, which really is exciting for them. They get to meet their PhD tutor. And then they have a, a sequence of seven tutorials. In and, that, and that for often for many of these children may be the first time they've ever been on a campus of higher learning and that exposure and all the, all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's often the first time they've met a PhD um, student. So for, for, for most folks in the UK, when they hear about a doctor, they think about their GP. Um, so it's kind of a revelation meeting someone who's a doctor of medieval history, for example, um, or, or astrophysics. And so, so they have these seven tutorials. And what's really important about that is this is close experience of teaching. So they're getting to work really closely, you know, in a tutorial space, sharing their ideas. And they're working through a handbook, a little bit like the one we've created with Quinewell at Hambrus. So each PhD researcher will bring forth their unique magical research. And that's what I think is so 
so wonderful about the scholars program so i found out just a couple of uh, days ago that we've been teaching six formers in hull how to build their first airplane um we have a program for key stage two children so that's tiny primary school children called can stars float in the bath which is a complex piece of astrophysics actually for primary school children and then we have this really really amazing library of all these handbooks of phd research lots of them actually as as looking through the days a lot on sustainability, climate change at the moment, lots of researchers in that area. But then we'll have things ranging across the humanities, the arts. We've got the power of portraiture, for example. That's another one over in the arts space. And what's important about those tutorials is the young person is working towards creating a final assignment. So they're writing a, an essay, essentially, um, and they get really close feedback on that essay. And it's marked as if it's an undergraduate essay. And then they celebrate the end of the programme they get to graduate at a university partner. So they get two trips to universities, which is, you know, hugely exciting for the young people and uh, a real highlight uh, of their time on the programme. This is obviously having a huge impact. So those numbers that you described when we began this podcast about, you know, the, the likelihood of somebody from these backgrounds going to university being 50 times less or, or whatever it was. I mean, those who are actually partaking in the scholars programme, that gap must be dramatically narrowed. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we've we worked with UCAS, the University and Colleges Admission Service, to run a, a five-year evaluation and we'll continue to do that in future years. That shows it essentially doubles the rate of application, offer and enrolment at one of those highly selective universities. So it makes a very real difference to the young people who partake. We've also just started to see some data about the effect it has once those young people are at university. And it seems to have a very powerful endowment effect in that essentially they get to university and they're like, I know how to write an essay. I know how to participate in a tutorial. So it's not just opening up the doors of the university. It's giving them a skill set that allows them to flourish once they're there. And that's where I think the agenda is going next, really tying up the getting in and the getting on. And that's where we want to head as a charity as well, to really support students to flourish once they're, once they're at university too. Paul, so what's the genesis of our relationship with the Brilliant Club? How did you find each other and, and what's, been, what's been going on? Yes, well, it was a really uh, natural and, and happy coincidence. We had seen the uh, work that the Brilliant Club do in, in terms of what Anne-Marie has said, in terms of that partnering with uh, subject matter experts and students that uh, are in underrepresented schools. And we ourselves had been looking at this challenge of financial literacy as well as diversity of applicants into banking. So we reached out to them and uh, that's where we came up with the idea of a, of a course. Uh, and the course was really focused on financial markets, but rather than tackling it through buzzwords, you know, the stock market, cryptocurrency, negative interest rates, it was more looking at a simplified sequence of evolutions from, you know, barter system into cash, corporations growing, needing capital, the stock market, the bond market, and so on into portfolio management and wealth planning and really the overall economy. So the course starts with that what is money, that initial evolution, and will we'll evolve uh, to give that full picture of the, the economy. Uh, it will launch from March of next year. Uh, it is targeted specifically at students from UK state schools in the 11 to 13 age group. Um, and we're really excited to get that to get that started, starting with what is money and, and evolving onwards from there. 
Anne-Marie, actually, you, this, is, this is slightly unique for you because usually your courses are designed by current PhD students. So, so how come the, the change in your normal approach? Yeah, you're right. Most of our courses are developed by a PhD tutor who is essentially developing a handbook um, that's pertinent to their sort of subjects specialism. Um, But we do partner with a range of organisations across the UK to develop what we call standard handbooks. Um, So Climate Hambrus um, sits alongside a a range of organisations, including the Wellcome Trust um, and also um, the Courtauld Institute of Art. So Together, we'll develop a scheme of work, which then PhD tutors who maybe are interested in teaching something, you know, aligned, but a little bit adjacent to what their usual subject expertise is, they can pick that up. That's a really great teaching and learning experience for them. We also find that is very popular with schools as well. So we'll, we'll have schools who are very keen um, to do one of these standard um, sort of uh, handbooks uh, like uh, What is Money? Um, and I guess the other thing is it allows us to reach a, a really significant scale as well. So if you've got one PhD tutor delivering their subject expertise, actually it's difficult for other folks to pick that up and run with it. Whereas for something like uh, What is Money, we can have multiple PhD tutors delivering that in all different settings across the UK. So it can it means we can reach a real range of young people uh, no matter where they are. It's it's really interesting, you know, as you've described the sort of the genesis of how how you know this course has come into being. But it's true; it's a recurring theme in our podcasts that, you know, even I mean, I'm not even talking about any particular children of all backgrounds. Uh, you know, the the level of financial awareness is is shockingly low, right? Even for university educated children, you know, kids will come out with a first class you know understanding of medieval history but they have no idea about how to balance a budget in their in their house or you know how to put away money every month you know whatever it is i mean the basics and uh and you know it's 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 fascinating actually and and you know and there's genuine need for this i mean i know that my own personal experience yours i think as well paul you know that nobody teaches you how to do these basics you just assume that you know your mom and dad are getting on with it and you'll you know you'll figure it out one day but and as a result we're quite overwhelmingly underprepared for financial maturity at age 21, 22, 23. So anyway, I think this is absolutely critical. Um, what was your own experience like? Do you, do you, does that resonate with you? Do you think kids are generally very unprepared for, you know, for basic personal finances when they, you know, even as adults? Yeah, I, I fully agree, Fahad. I mean, if I look at my own experience from this, I, uh, you know, went primary school, secondary school, I happened to go across into university to study finance, but I could have gone to study anything else. And in fact, at one point, I thought I was. What was it? Well, in, well interestingly enough, my, my interest, what I went to the career uh, guidance uh, with was I love maths. I love the application of mathematics. And they immediately went engineering, off you go, next. You know, that was kind of the view. And I did. I applied to engineering in in university. I was accepted. And when I was approaching the course, I thought, this isn't for me. Structural engineering, that's not personally what I'm interested in. And at that time, I had this just coincidence of observing, I think it was even through uh, films and on TV and, and just watching the news and how markets reacted to a hurricane somewhere in the world and and that had an an effect on asset prices that fascinated me and that made me rethink that application of mathematics and i think that's an that's an integral part because for me personally i'd find that i'd leapt from 
the times tables to maybe a little bit of trigonometry and the angle and the triangle to suddenly in a degree with the you know derivative pricing models where what happened in between where was education on uh, when the equity market might be appropriate for you as an asset class what is the value in the national savings and investment scheme what is an isa what happened to that middle bit it wasn't there and for me personally that that's had an impact but then also i do believe that careers wise that lack of familiarity is the reason why perhaps uh, you know particularly as a you know northern irish guy uh, in the in the countryside of county down getting a job in the city is not necessarily going to be an obvious uh, route it's not something that we see as necessarily that you know that we resonate with or that we see that sort of representation in and therefore that we think of so i think the the, the longer term impact here is actually career decisions as well as day-to-day personal banking. Yeah, yeah. And Anne-Marie, what, what, does that resonate with you as well? I mean, are we basically quite underserved in, in sort of personal financial literacy? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people will say, well, the answer is schools need to do more on it. And and I don't think that's always the, the right call, actually, because schools are doing so much already. That's why I think partnerships like this are really important to see different organisations playing a role in building financial literacy. I mean, I've got I've got a few interesting observations on this. So I'm I'm from a you know classic working class family from a pit village um, in Yorkshire. And and the reason I opened a bank account is the government at the time I was a sixth former was giving out um, some money called educational maintenance allowance. So it was given to you as an individual and it was going to go into my mum's bank account unless I got a bank account. So I went and just signed up for a bank account at the local bank. And, and that I remember being very clear that I wanted that. Which alone so, is a quantum leap, right? Which that alone, that process of opening an account. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I do think for, for young people who are going to university, that moment where you apply for student finance is a really fundamental moment because very often it's the first time you've had a really, really robust discussion with your parents about, you know, what is our household income and where are we on the spectrum of earnings? And I can remember that being a really important moment and seeing how much bursary or loan you're entitled to. Um, And I think that is a sort of jumping off point for, for a lot of low income students in particular into this world of becoming more financially capable around their own personal decision making. And certainly when I worked at universities, we were putting a lot of effort into financial literacy at the undergraduate level. So you've seen a lot of charities and other organisations coming through into that space as well. Um, I think I think there's a, a few interesting things going on as well in terms of um, students showing interest in in this topic area. So economics is, you know, in, in the top in the top of the pops rundown of most popular A levels, economics lands tenth. Right, it's really really popular. About thirty thousand students a year do that subject. What we then see at university level, and and I, I I'm genuinely not exaggerating. It is harder to get onto economics courses at the moment than it is to get onto medicine courses. It is so popular, but the real trick is to help young people and, and applicants to see what what happens after graduation and what that type of degree can do or what another kind of degree can do. Lots of the banks at the moment are really interested in computer science graduates. So there are different routes into this industry, into this world of of work that potentially young people don't understand. So I think, yes, there's financial literacy, but I think Paul's broader point is about routes through into the industry. And and that is as as important, in, in my opinion. So we've got personal 
effectiveness, personal finance, but then this broader issue about who gets to join organisations like Kleinwell Hambrus. I think you, you've sort of touched on, on a topic which is at root of everything we're talking about today, is that regardless of background, etc., I mean, it's educational equality that allows, you know, the most, it's, it's the strongest force for levelling up. But what practical steps can individuals and organisations take to provide opportunities for people from underrepresented backgrounds? Yeah, I think I think there's two main routes for organisations. The first one is to support and partner with organisations that are, are playing in that space already, because by working together, you can accelerate your impact. Um, so I always recommend to fellow charities, organisations, public institutions, how can you work in a collective manner to help young people? And, and that's ultimately what schools want as well. So if you're particularly focused on working with schools, that's a really good brokerage way uh, into, into getting, you know, the, the sorts of um, material and content we've been talking about with Klein Hambros into the hands of young people. So working in partnership. The second thing is, is I think being... Um, really honest with yourself about your own recruitment practices as a business or, or an organisation and seeing those two things as interlinked. So um, I always encourage organisations, you know, it's not it's not just something you're doing because it's a good thing to do. You're also doing it because it's absolutely vital for the future of your, of your business, of your organisation. Um, and so those two things together, the external picture, the partnership, how you bring your expertise to the fore for, for folks who can benefit from it. But second of all, how you're um, really scrutinising your pipeline, your recruitment, and also more broadly, things like being a living wage employer. All of these things contribute because the young people we work with, it's those families that aren't on a living wage. So I encourage people to see it as a sort of connectedness across those two, two, two areas. And then I think the third thing to say is I meet lots of individuals who are really passionate and, and really want their institutions, their business, their organisation they work for to take action on these issues. And I, I there's a great quote from um, a wonderful, wonderful person called Paulie Murray. She was the first uh, African-American to get a, a, a law doctorate, actually. Um, she was refused entry to Harvard because she was uh, a woman. Anyway, she just went off to Yale and got one anyway. And, and she always says... One woman or one person plus one typewriter equals a movement. And so without the enthusiasm and the drive of people like Paul, you can't move your organisation or your institution towards these sorts of activities. So I always encourage people to think about their own personal power in taking steps towards um, closing some of those inequality gaps. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, on, on that, I'm going to touch very briefly on this, that, you know, you're right. We have, you know, at Climate Ambers and, and Paul can touch on this as well. You know, we have actively reviewed our own recruiting practices, making sure that we are being responsible employers and, and in every sense of that word, um, you know, but not just, as you said, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because, if you're looking at underserved pools of labor, for example, you know, or underrepresented pools of labor, the chances of you, you know, really finding high quality, you know, staff is much higher as opposed to fishing in the exact same ponds as, you know, as, as everywhere else. Anyway, we have made active steps towards doing that uh, for all the reasons as needed. You know, it's a good thing to do and it's good for us, uh, you know. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, a lot of this stems from that sort of taboo around money and and the, the 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 sort of stereotypes that go alongside that so you know we've got that you know that lack of financial education on one side and you know the, the unwillingness to speak about it 
in public, which you know, to a large extent, I think is due to that association of the measure of your wealth being a measure of your worth. You know, it's it's a very personal thing when in reality that is not true at all. They're two very different things, but also that perception of finances being as that more elite end of that wealth, particularly a private bank. You think private bank, you immediately think closed doors and, and complex financial products and the, the, you know and, and therefore the individuals go alongside that perhaps even that stereotype of you know screaming white men on a trading floor you know it, it's it's that further uh, compounded with with how how banking is often perceived in the in the media and that is not true and i think as much as it's integral that we tackle that education piece at grassroots level with with organizations such as the Brilliant Club. We also need to address that and, and show who are the people that work in our organizations and ensure that people can see that there is representation of their particular background, uh, whatever that may be, um, they can see that that works. You know, you, you, you can be introverted or extroverted, white or black, male or female. It really all applies in banking. It's really about bringing out the strengths of the individual and showing how that really adds to the service that we provide. So just one final question really for, for the both of you, which is, you know, what do you think could be, you know, sort of the short and long-term impacts of increasing financial literacy amongst the younger generation? I mean, do you want to take, Paul, do you want to take the short-term impacts? And Anne-Marie, can I give you the, the longer-term sort of structural impacts of these programs? Yeah, sure. I think in the in the short term, we really need to bring in that familiarity and, and understanding at a much more simplified level. We have a surge of solutions being provided by various organisations and apps that you know put trading into your hands and a lot of DIY finance. But when you do that without financial literacy, you're really just feeding off the same ideas as a, a, a betting application it's or what people might associate as the nearest thing in you know like horse uh, betting on horses that kind of thing and that's completely wrong there is a very important distinction between uh, gambling and investment and we need to create that that distinction so in the short term it's really about bringing that understanding of uh, when uh, an asset class is appropriate to you when you may need the support of a private bank and where you know DIY is absolutely appropriate and I think for us from Clangworth Hamburg's perspective our, our, our main message is simplifying life's financial challenges and for us that, that, that really resonates and ties with what we're trying to do with this programme. Yeah so um, th- through sort of opening up access to those highly selective universities you essentially open up a whole range of opportunities after that in terms of uh, life. I always say that graduates are healthier, uh, wealthier and happier. And essentially, they have access to labour market opportunities that their peers who haven't accessed highly selective universities simply don't have. So there's a very long term game here. And ultimately, it's connected to the the UK's (laughs) increasingly um, problematic issue of social mobility. Um, So so the UK has seen social mobility levels contracting since the mid 80s against the backdrop of rising inequality. 
Uh, we know the government is talking a lot about levelling up at the moment. But the reason social mobility matters so much, you know, it matters to individuals. It matters that kids get a chance to fulfil their talents. It, it matters to institutions. We've just talked about, you know, climate Hambrus or, or a university but it matters to, to productivity for the UK as well. Uh, we know that it could quadruple productivity if we get it right. And that's the work of Raj Shetty at Harvard University. So it matters on the on these three levels. And I guess what I'm really interested in is how, how do we how do we build a, a better life together? Um, and so I see the work that we're doing together, um, Climate Hambrus and the Brilliant Club, as, as laying the foundations for that ultimately. Uh, Anne-Marie, we are so grateful to have had your time today, both Paul and I, uh, on behalf of Climate Hambrose. And if somebody wants to support the Brilliant Club, which how can they not after hearing uh, today's podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, we'd, we'd love your support um, in, in all shapes and forms. So uh, one, get in contact with the team at Climate Hambros about how we can build our work together. But two, if you head onto our website, there's a support section. And I actually always recommend people just follow our Twitter feed because it's the easiest way to stay up to date with all the wonderful things that are happening. And you get to see loads of beautiful graduation pictures of kids having an absolutely extraordinary time. Um, so head onto our website, get to the support section and follow us on social media. And we, we're always happy to hear from folks who want to uh, lean into the challenges of, of closing in some of those education gaps we see. Thank you, Anne-Marie, so much for your time today. Paul, even though you didn't end up studying engineering, you've built bridges for us to the Brilliant Club. So thank you very, very much for that. And I uh, greatly appreciate your time. And I certainly will be going over to your support page myself today, Anne-Marie. Thank you very, very much. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Wealth Chat. Do make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you're notified as soon as the next episode is available. Until then... Thank you again to Anne-Marie and to Paul and to you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwort Hambrus Group. In the United Kingdom by S.G. Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by S.G. Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. S.G. Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited Guernsey Branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.